Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the music from the 1975 film The Iger Sanction. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. It's great to have you here for this episode, which kicks off a very limited composing schedule for the year 1975 for John Williams. Only two films occupied his time that year, as opposed to the four scores he wrote in 1974. One of those 1975 scores contains a watershed score that began to change what we hear in movie music. Of course, that film is Jaws, but before Williams took on that assignment, he sat down to write some music for what I am labeling an Americanized James Bond spy thriller called The Iger Sanction. And that's the film featured in this episode. I am not alone in discussing The Iger Sanction for this episode. Joining me is Brian Martell, a longtime John Williams fan who counts The Iger Sanction as one of his top John Williams scores of the 1970s. Brian, it's good to have you here for this episode. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's, a, it's an honor to be on the cast with you today. I really enjoy your podcast and look forward to reviewing the score and perhaps introducing a few of your listeners to one of uh, William's finest scores pre-Star Wars. Uh, You're spot on with the Bond reference. Uh, The novel the film is based on was set up as a parody of the Bond franchise to that point, and the last film to premiere as the book was being polished was Diamonds Are Forever. So the writer, a University of Texas film professor, believe it or not, would have been having some fun with the Connery Bonds, similar to the Flint films from the States. It wouldn't take much tweaking to make this a Bond flick. In fact, you could argue they did that with For Your Eyes Only in 1981, with the climbing sequences there. Eastwood wasn't really interested in the spy espionage angle, so the film doesn't dwell that much on it. And tell the listeners about yourself, particularly how you became a fan of John Williams' music. Well, for myself, I'm an actor guy up here in Calgary, Canada. And as far as liking John Williams, like many others, I became a fan of him with uh, the release of Star Wars in June 1977. Now, I know your listeners are going it was released in May, but that was in the state. Didn't get it up north here until a little bit later. And uh, like many, I was so blown away with Star Wars that I became an instant, I must have everything connected to this film fanboy. That tends to happen when you're 15, and the first thing I saw in the store was the soundtrack album, so I grabbed it. Now those around from back then will know just how really outstanding that that release was. Uh, A two-disc set, which was rare at the time, but it had a cool poster of the battle over the Death Star, and to this day, literally some of the best liner notes ever. It was a great release. And, uh, You described the music, and then you had the bio, and as I read the bio about this John Williams fellow, I saw that he composed the score to Jaws, which I thought was okay. But more importantly, he scored the Poseidon Adventure, Earthquake, the Towering Inferno, and also the Irwin Allen television shows of my childhood, Lost in Space, Time Tunnel, Land of the Giants. Now, not only did I love all those films and shows, but I remembered the music from them. So imagine my pleasant surprise when I realized I'd been a fan of John Williams my whole life. I just... uh, I just didn't know who he was. Now that I knew who he was, I was determined to get every piece of music he ever writ and wrote, I guess, and I've been working on that ever since. Well, that's pretty amazing. I'm sure you have a really big collection. Yeah, I do. It feels a hard drive. And what is it about the score for the Iger Sanction that makes it stand out for you? Well, to be honest, at first it didn't. I never saw the film in the theater. I was a bit too young. 
but I did catch, catch it on TV. I'm guessing it would have been the, the broadcast premiere, probably late 75, late 76, early 77. And I remember liking the film and the music for when they climbed a monument in Monument Valley and, and the theme when you first see the, the mountain for the Eiger, but that's about all I remembered. It was my best friend, John Bowser, who later pointed out to me that John Williams had written the score. And so, of course, we looked for the album, but were unfortunately told by the uh, managers of the local record stores in Calgary it was out of print. And uh, when I attended university in Toronto, John insisted I look for the album there. And when he found out I was planning a spring break trip to New York, he said, look for it there. Maybe you'll find it. Now, of course, at this point, I didn't remember the music, but I certainly trusted his assertion that it, I must have that album. So, of course... The secret was if I had it, then he would have a copy too via cassette. So, so it would be a win-win for both of us. And anyone listening, yes, cassettes, I'm that old. I actually found the album in a collecting record store in New York. And uh, at the time, the price was 25 US, which was pretty exorbitant in spring of 1982. But it became part of my New York splurge. I was looking forward to listen to it, but add to my dismay, I didn't have a turntable available at my... Uh, residence in university so i had to wait another two and a half months till i could get home to play it that's an amazing story i've, I've never heard of anybody who had to travel that far just to get this music and uh, when you finally got to play this album did you immediately love the score or was it a gradual appreciation of it uh, put the uh, record on the turntable again that old the needle down the main title began to play and enthralled loved it instant favorite uh, not only is it a great score, but, but the album presentation, I think, is one of Williams' best. And, and that's saying a lot for all the albums he did. It, it, it's definitely, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd uh, put money on it. It's the best side one he ever produced. It, it's good. So I'm actually more familiar with the uh, music from the album than from the film. And I know you said you got to watch it on TV. And maybe even all these years later, you know, what do you think of the film? Well, the, the version I saw on TV was edited, so when I saw the unedited version, I had a few cringeworthy things. But, um, uh, you know, despite many plot holes, you could, to do another uh, Star Wars reference, drive Darth Vader's Super Star Destroyer through from The Empire Strikes Back. But And also that it, it's painfully dated in the 70s progressive terms and, and has a number of, shall we say, not-so-progressive moments at all. But... Uh, you know, I enjoy the story and the climbing, but but once it's over, I have to admit the movie fades. I just watched it. I think we watched it the last weekend, and I can't really can't remember it. The only thing that sticks is the music. Yeah, it's one of those movies that yeah, you you wonder why it was made. <laughs> well, it was the seventies. Yes, that's right. So before we continue, we should give our listeners a little backstory about the Iger Sanction, with some spoilers coming up, as I usually do. Clint Eastwood is not only the star of this film, he also directed it, as he has before with some of his pictures like Play Misty for Me. This marked his fourth time behind the camera, and he wanted it to be his last picture with Universal Studios. Eastwood didn't like the way Universal was marketing the movies he directed and wanted to get out of that four-picture deal he had with the studio. He wasn't particularly enamored with the script for the Iger Sanction, probably those dated 70s progressive themes that you were talking about, Brian. But but he took it as a quick and easy way out. Just get this movie done and he could do what he really wanted. To his credit, Eastwood didn't just phone in his work here. He actually wanted to do his own mountain climbing. 
and preferred to use real locations and close-up shots that really did make us feel like we were a part of the movie. And Robert Daly had been Clint Eastwood's resident producer since Eastwood's first time as a director for Play Misty for Me, which I think is a very good film. Serving as executive producers and essentially the big bosses of the production were David Brown and Richard Zanuck, who were just coming off a profitable release of the Sugarland Express. Brown and Zanuck were very involved with the filming of the Iger Sanction, but their main attention was fixed on a movie being filmed on Martha's Vineyard called Jaws. Brown and Zanuck weren't the only two people that worked on both films. After the success of the Sugarland Express, Spielberg already knew he wanted John Williams to write the score for Jaws, securing the maestro in late 1974 for that project. But Zanuck and Brown also wanted to retain Williams for the Iger sanction, and with Williams the top composer in residence at Universal Studios, it was natural for Williams to attach himself to the project. Now, how Williams actually became the composer for the Iger Sanction is up for debate, with many different versions being told. The popular one indicates that Eastwood singled out Williams, who had a jazz background that fit into Eastwood's sensibilities for his scores. The other tale is that Brown and Zanuck wanted Williams as composer for the Iger Sanction, and Eastwood approved the recommendation. That's the one I tend to believe because of the previous collaboration on the Sugarland Express. But the question I have, Brian, and maybe you can answer this, is was D. Barton, his composer for Play Misty for Me and High Plains Drifter, ever considered for the Iger sanction? I'm not sure myself. He he may have been unavailable, but uh, I agree with you. I think Zanuck and Brown didn't just suggest Williams as producers do. I think they actually insisted on his involvement and, and Eastwood agreed on it. And I'm not sure where I read it, but I do remember reading that Williams knew that Eastwood was a big jazz fan, and he went a tad heavier on the jazz component for this score to appeal to Eastwood's taste and ensure Eastwood would be happy with uh, Williams' involvement in the project. And with the Iger sanction and Jaws set for release just one month apart, and both finishing filming at nearly the same time, Williams would have to work back-to-back on these scores, which is nothing new, because he did it the previous year on Earthquake and The Towering Inferno. Now, luckily, the Iger Sanction and Jaws have nothing in common, so there won't be any accusations of cut-and-paste work by Williams in his 1975 compositions. Also, Williams wasn't pushed up against the film release date in terms of completing his score. The Iger Sanction score was recorded over four days between January 29th and February 5th, 1975, which was a full four months before the film was released. You know, Jeff, I have to admit, I, I'm amazed at, at how you know almost all the recording dates. It really amaze, amazes me, and I appreciate it as the anal retentive side of my fanboy collecting really likes to get everything in chronological order, and uh, your podcast is making that a bit easier, but I'm, I'm amazed you can do that. It's, it's incredible. Well, for that, I have to thank my friends at the American Federation of Musicians. They have helped a lot in keeping my chronology in line, especially in terms of years where he has multiple releases. I know exactly which ones are in which order. That's great. Right now I I order it in release date, but now I can change it. (laughs) But the score Williams would write for the film, well, it has a few nice symphonic moments. It's actually more typical of of the 70s sound, the sound I grew up with as a kid, a mix of jazz, pop, funk, folk, and and a touch of what I call full Baroque. I mean, you and your listeners would have heard this sound quite a bit up to now, and uh, it'll be a bit in Jaws, and I think it's going to continue to hover in your ears until you hit Star Wars and everything changes, when the symphonic sound just rules supreme for the next five years or so. 
I actually chuckled during your uh, Cinderella Liberty podcast when I was listening to it because you, you wondered why there was this weird funk riff that that appeared in a piece of music, and I laughed because it's there because it was part of the Hollywood sound at the time. I think it was thanks to the huge success of Shaft in the early '70s that, that the funk really, really came in. And, you know, some scores Williams did, you know, heavier with the folk here, the funk there, the jazz vibe, and the the Baroque harpsichord orchestrations really abounded especially sort of late 72 to May 77 when it all changed. Yeah, I I love Shaft as a movie. It's kind of one of those movies you kind of love to hate, but if I have to blame it for Williams doing all this funk music, well, I'm, I'm not too upset by it. I don't remember much of it, but I remember that theme. Yeah, everybody remembers it. All right, Brian, so it's time to start talking about the score, and I want to start with that opening scene. So we see a man walking through the streets of Zurich, Switzerland, and the feel is very reminiscent of the opening 10 minutes of The Secret Ways, the 1960 spy film that also featured music by John Williams. Not to mention that both films open with a man walking through the streets of Zurich. It's just too much of a coincidence. Now the music in the opening of the Iger Sanction reminded me very much of The Secret Ways, including the musical choice of harpsichord and a main theme with the European feel. Now, I don't bring this up to say that Williams was being lazy with his choice, but I believe he composed in this way because this style fit both films well. I immediately felt this was to be a film with lots of intrigue and suspense, and the main theme was setting it up well.
So, Brian, you've listened to my podcast episode for The Secret Ways. Are my comparisons valid, or is it just a bunch of nonsense? No, a little similar. I, I think you're on to something there. But uh, for me, it, 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 the main title has that 70s vibe, right? The uh, bit of jazz, bit of that Baroque. But yeah, it definitely informs any audience. We are not in America anymore, but in a more sophisticated, dangerous European environment. Sophisticated, at least we're led to believe, anyway. Yeah, I agree. It's not completely derivative, but there are moments in the score that are drawn from previous scores. Moments that worked well before and work well here. A prime example of that is the first moment of real underscore when a man, presumably a spy, is attacked in his home after he retrieves a sliver of microfilm. The spy swallows the microfilm in an attempt to keep anyone from getting the evidence. And the two men fight for a bit before the assailant slits the man's throat. In an earlier, more gruesome edit of the film, the assailant is seen pulling the swallowed microfilm from the man's throat and escaping. Thankfully, we don't see that, but we get some excellent piano playing in the low register that feels perfect for the scene. Williams liked using the bass notes on the piano for action sequences in the 1960s and 1970s. Besides this scene, I go back to the 1965 film, None But the Brave, when he used the piano quite heavily during the attack scenes. I have always enjoyed Williams' work with the piano in all of his early scores, and it's a shame that he will begin to step away from piano writing after this film to focus on other parts of the orchestra, because obviously he is a master at the piano. Absolutely. And uh, as I describe this music, I apologize to anyone musically inclined. I love music, but I'm not really sure of the terms. So please, listeners, forgive my uneducated term, uh, descriptions. But I find the, uh, the low piano bits have kind of those tense guttural moments that uh, I really were, was reminded of the Poseidon Adventure and parts of the Towering Inferno. You know, sometimes you got to wonder if the same guy composed all of these, hey? Yeah, it's a great signature that John Williams used to great effect early in his career. So I mentioned that quasi-Bond girl in this picture, and it happens to be a woman named Jemima. Yes, Jemima. And there's a lot of clunky and uncomfortable dialogue spent making jokes about the name and comparing it to the Aunt Jemima of pancake syrup fame. Once Jemima and Jonathan are alone in his home, 
The two get a version of the music we heard in the opening credits, arranged in a nice jazz style with guitar. Yeah, uh, <laughs> any, anything about that relationship just really doesn't doesn't play right today. But uh, I, I got to say, in the film's defense, it was 44 years ago, and uh, being a kid back then, I, I can at least say, hey, they were trying to be progressive and inclusive. Uh, again, it, it doesn't play today, and some of the dialogue is it's it's just this side of offensive, if not over offensive. But it's worth noting at the time, Eastwood Eastwood's a big star in '75, right? And I'm not sure if the character was African American in the novel, but but he could have changed the role. He could have cast any name actress in that role he wanted to, but he chose to cast a African American woman in in a major role in the film. So they were trying. So perhaps if you decide to watch the film, remembering this can help temper uh, the many, many, many cringeworthy moments you'll come across as you watch the film today. That aside, though, you gotta love those smooth jazz '70s love themes. Very, uh, very Henry Mancini-esque. I've, uh, I've wondered, Jeff, and I, I don't know what you think about this. Early in his career, I wonder if Williams might have been known as the low-budget Henry Mancini, uh, in the way that James Horner in the uh, early to mid '80s was actually in the industry, kind of called the low-budget Williams Goldsmith. If you wanted one of those two A-listers for your film and couldn't afford them, uh, you were tended to sent in the direction of James Horner because he would give you something similar at uh, less money. And I think about all those comedy scores he did in the 60s, I, I just sort of just wonder if maybe that was his moniker in the uh, industry until he hit big in the 70s with his first Oscar. Yeah, it didn't help that uh, Williams was uh, 
kind of a protege of Mancini, and th- those comedies he did were very much reminiscent of the lighter scores that that Mancini did, you know, like Pink Panther and things like that. So it's it's not out of the realm of possibility. I also want to just kind of touch on you talked about Horner being a low budget Williams Goldsmith. I kind of thought that later in his career, especially in the '80s, that Goldsmith became a low budget Williams. So. Uh, you know, I'm going to talk about this, especially when we get to Superman, but it's just, it's amazing how when one composer star rises, everybody else wants to try to emulate him and becomes that second choice. And it's, it's hard to deal with, I'm sure, especially for someone like Jerry Goldsmith, who was bigger than John Williams, but kind of once Jaws and Star Wars came along, kind of had to realize his, his position was relegated down to number two. Yeah, he was uh, he was right up there. Williams got ahead of him with the Oscar for Jaws, but he Goldsmith followed it right the year after with the Omen. They were kind of tied, but once Star Wars landed, it was uh, no wonder. I, I I know some people in the industry, and uh, near the end of his life, you did not want to bring up John Williams in discussion with Jerry Goldsmith. <laughs> As a friend of mine who knew I was a fan of Amadeus said, "There's a little bit of Salieri Mozart going on there," but. Again, it's not that Goldsmith, I, I think the two men were friends and they had great, great respect for each other, but I, I understand where you're coming from. I, I feel sorry for Jerry Goldsmith because he was so good. After Williams, Williams and Goldsmith are, Williams is number one, but Goldsmith is such a close number two. I, I love their their work. They just they just rock no matter what they're doing. But Yeah, I think it was a friendly rivalry, business rivalry that, uh, yeah, I think probably Goldsmith harbored a bit more resentment than Williams did. All right, so let's get back to the Iger sanction here, Brian. And um, back to Jemima, who it turns out she's working for the man who hired Hemlock for just one hit on the man who killed his the spy at the beginning of the movie. She'll turn up more in the film, but it seems that she isn't really needed for no other reason than just to create this love interest. And in this film, it's not needed. Pretty much like half the Bond girls that have become famous through the years weren't really needed. In any case... Hemlock is bribed into taking on the second sanction, which is another way of calling it an assassination. This one taking place on the Eiger Mountain in Switzerland, where sources say the hitman will be. In order to get into shape, Hemlock goes to Arizona to train with his former mountain climbing partner. His name is Ben, and he's played by Oscar winner George Kennedy. Ben is pretty much the only interesting character in the film, and that might be due to Kennedy's performance. I think this sequence of the film, about 35 minutes long, might be the best part of the film, both visually and musically. Well, you're absolutely right about George Kennedy. When I was young, you could trust. He was always good, always fun, and yeah, he always tends to steal the screen whenever he's on it. Uh, The music cue that takes us to the training portion called Friends and Enemies begins with our last moment of exhibition in the film, really, as uh, Jemima notices a photo with Hemlock and two other men. And Hemlock tells her, and also us that one is the guy we saw murdered in the opening scene, and the other is the man who betrayed them both once on a mission. The harpsichord comes in again with a theme presented in a dark and menacing arrangement underlying the traitor's threat, Hemlock's hatred, and the danger lies ahead. We then shift to a jazzy rendition of the main theme, telling us the exposition is over, we're on to business now as we shift to a different location, and uh, get ready to meet Ben.
Uh, in the film, this cue is dialed out as uh, Ben makes his entrance and Kennedy begins to steal the scene. But on the album cue, it, it continues into, I would say, another one of your favorite funk sec sections there, Jeff. Yeah, John Williams and the electric guitar. You got to love it. So now that Jonathan is in Arizona, one of the ways Ben gets his friend into shape is by having him run with a woman named George. The runs themselves are mostly dialogue free, giving Williams free reign to have some fun with the music. He chooses a style that's very different from any of the music we've heard in the film. It's essentially chamber music written in the Baroque style, like some of the music he composed for the paper chase. I don't know if this musical style was recommended by Eastwood as director or if Williams approached Eastwood with the idea. Either way, I like its inclusion in the film, even if it sounds a bit out of place. Thank you. 
Well, there's that old 70s faux baroque. You, you, you gotta love it. I think it was there because it was the sound. What, what I, uh, the cue sets kind of the tone for the comic relief portion of the film, I think, as we get a chuckle as Manly Hemlock just can't keep up with the young lady. I also like that Williams added a guitar to the Baroque aspect of the orchestration, giving the, the sense of a more American feel, you know, as we're now kind of in the, the Western U.S. as opposed to Europe. It was a nice little subtle touch. It was. And I think we both count the scene where Jonathan and Ben climb the famous totem pole in Monument Valley, Arizona, as one of our favorites in the film. It's a tense scene because you don't really know how Hemlock will make it to the top, but when he does, we're treated to something very special. As I get older, I find myself with a growing and very embarrassing fear of heights, and this sequence should have made me really uncomfortable. And I noted watching the film, again for this podcast, I should be uncomfortable at this, but I wasn't. Everything that the camera shows seems dangerous, but William's score highlights the beauty, the majesty of the era, the, the two men's love of climbing, and we tend to enjoy the climb with them rather than be unnerved by what we see and enjoy the beauty nature offers. It's just a beautiful cue, and I'm not sure anyone does horns and fanfares the way John Williams does. It's great.
Yeah, that's just great. In addition to meeting Ben, we also meet the traitor in Hemlock's photo, Miles Mello, played with over-the-top relish by the late Jack Cassidy. And I often, and again, I'm not going to get into it, but if you watch the film, you got to wonder if this character might have been originally based on Diamonds Are Forever's infamous Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd. Anyway, Miles tries to kill Hemlock via the climbing trainer Lady George, fails, and so after Hemlock flaunts his survival, he gets into a jeep and drives into the desert. And for some reason, Miles and his very impressive muscle man give chase, and here is where the best cue in the film should have come in, 50 miles of desert, where John Williams gives us a cue very much in the style of, of the great Jerry Goldsmith. I really like this music, but after playing it while watching the scene, I think it was a good suggestion to take away the music. The sound of the car engines and the dialogue and, and then later on the gunshots were enough for the scene. All of that brass would have been too much of an assault on our ears. 
Yeah, I, I agree. It's a standout cue, but the chase scene, I, not, nothing uh, offensive to Mr. Eastwood, though. I think if he directed the film a few years later, it would have been better. The chase scene is not very good, especially when you think about how influential Bullet was a few years earlier. But I think what Eastwood asked John Williams to do was to jazz the, the sequence up a bit. And uh, if you actually sync the music to the image, it, it, it just makes the car chase look worse, not better. So I think after a spotting session, Clint Eastwood likely said, thanks, it's great, guess you just have to put it on the album, John. That said, I, I do find uh, parts of this cue and other elements in this score really foreshadowing what John Williams is going to do 16 years later with uh, JFK. Yeah, that's very interesting there, Brian. I'm going to make a note to bring that up in our, in my JFK episode. Bit of honesty, I'm looking forward to that one because uh, JFK, even though it's going to be months from now, is one of my top 10 William scores, so I'm looking forward to that one. But let's get back to Iger. With Miles left 50 miles in the desert to die, I think the pun of the title is intended, we transition to the final portion of the film with the introduction of our title character, the Iger Mountain in Switzerland, scored with another wonderful Williams fanfare. The main thing then returns with a sinister arrangement, placing us once again in dangerous Europe. This music runs a very close second for me to the music when Hemlock reaches the top of the totem pole. It's the kind of music Williams liked writing, and I think it came very easy for him. Yeah, actually, when I listen to this cue, it's very reminiscent of the fanfare in the Towering Inferno, where they light up, all the lights go all the way up the uh, model, I mean the tower. Yeah, very, very good music. It's actually one of my favorite moments in the Towering Inferno. Yeah. So at this point, the main theme, which I thought all along was to be associated with the mountain, takes prominence. And it really becomes a showcase in your favorite musical moment of the movie, right, Brian? Yeah, yeah. The highlight of the score for me in the film is the sequence as the team tries to climb the Agra Mountain after a snow squall has literally frozen the landscape. It begins with chime-like tones that, that underscore the climbers' difficulty with the terrain. And as the cue builds, we... We not only feel the cold, but we feel the climbers' growing sense of despair as they, they realize their attempt to conquer the mountain is going to fail. And the cue ends with, with just this glorious sense of utter defeat. And it's glorious because the Williams cue is about a four-minute tour de force. It's, it's Williams at his emotional best.
It is awesome. For most of that scene, I was so enraptured with the cinematography and watching these actors do their own climbing stunts. I just couldn't believe they were doing it. This was one of those scenes that I was I was nervous watching, like you were nervous watching um, him climb the totem pole. And I think the music was subconsciously making me feel that. So when I watched the scene a second time, I really understood how the music was getting under my skin with those sustained high registers on the flute while Jean-Paul's condition just kept getting worse. Yeah, I, I agree. I think for all the Iger sequences, the footage, I mean, if you turn the music off and you, you watch the film and you look at the footage for climbing the totem and then climbing the Iger, it's almost the same footage, but it's the music. It's, it's William's music that, that, that gives you the, the sense of danger. Arizona, you get wonder, and, and, uh, but here on the Iger, the music pushes the danger, the cold, and it certainly pushed my fear of heights in, in this season. I uh, guess I pushed my fear of heights to the heights, if you'll pardon the pun. And uh, we get to our climactic thing. Uh, I, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but the film ends with the mystery of exactly who Hemlock's next target should be is solved. And uh, as we wind down, I think there's a wonderful little bit of self-deprecating humor. Uh, Eastwood was always good at that, as, as Hemlock lies, you know, sort of recovering with Jemima on, uh, in the... Uh, mountain resort he gets a call from the leader of his organization you find out that everyone in the organization think he he killed all the members of his climbing team but we and he knows he didn't kill anybody they they uh, i guess big spoiler they all die by accident leaving us with the question is john hemlock a dangerous assassin or is he just a guy pure to, just prone to pure dumb luck Anyway, the film ends with uh, the end title, an up-tempo, light version of the theme playing over the end credits. And, and, and this sort of arrangement was very typical, again, to my memory of, of that point of time in films. And they all tended to end that way, light, up-tempo, leave the audience, have the audience leave the theater with a smile on their face, toe-tapping.
So I, I, I do like the score to the film, but I think I like it more on album than, than uh, film. And again, I think it's one of Williams' best. And over the years, I've become more familiar with the album version. The, the film, as I say, fading, become only a dim memory. But uh, what I liked about this, it was fun to put the music back in the film for the, the podcast, which is what I really love about your project. I'm so used to listening to the music uh, separately. It, it's, it's fun to hear you connect it back to the film. It, it's uh, I really like that about uh, the baton. It's it it's kind of adds a bit of magic to me. So thank you for that approach. As for the album, I hope one of our big labels re-releases it soon. Uh, probably two versions: the the film score and then the album, uh, because the al the orchestrations on the album, uh, as you probably realize, listening to both, some cues are are radically different from what you hear in the movie. The main title is the prime example. is completely different. Most of the albums Williams puts together never really encapsulate the feel of the score from the film, and that's what frustrates me sometimes. It's all about the listening experience, which is why I never listen to a score outside of the film first. Sometimes you anticipate hearing a piece of music, such as that 50 Miles of Desert track, and when you don't hear it in the film, you spend the rest of the time thinking about that missing music. Yeah, I, I agree there. It's just I've I've had too many years of score before movie, so I guess I'm used to it. But I, I actually would would say I think his album for the Agra Sanction really does encapsulate the score. All the highlights are there, and 
going through the 70s, the frustration was when you finally got the album, there was so much music you loved that wasn't on it. This is an example of where all the music you loved was. And uh, I, I can highly recommend it to listeners over the movie, but each to their own. If you want to watch the movie, do. But if you want to avoid it, the, the album will just give you a thrill. I also just uh, point out, once you and your listeners breach the Star Wars era, looking back, I think uh, they may agree with me that this album, I think, pretty much sums up how John Williams sounded before he sounded like the way we now all expect him to sound. Well, it's kind of maybe my own selfish things. One of my goals for the podcast is to get people to watch these films connected with the movies. So I think everyone should seek it out and just watch it once just to see Clint Eastwood possibly fulfilling a dream of being a stuntman and to hear how the music works in the film. Yeah, you get some great climbing footage, too. So as I say, it's uh, I'm not sure how modern younger audience will think but uh, the climbing sequences are fantastic i i think they they transcend time so yeah definitely worth a watch yeah the music and cinematography awesome absolutely and speaking of the music eastwood really did enjoy working with john williams and it's odd that the two never collaborated again brian but i i do wonder if eastwood ever approached williams after the Iger sanction to do another score uh, but in any case, Eastwood said that the score to the Iger sanction, get this, was better than William's score to Jaws. Now, Brian, as someone who really likes the Iger sanction, what do you think of Eastwood's claim? Uh, first, I, I, if just to say why they never got together, I think if Eastwood did approach Williams after Iger sanction, Williams probably wasn't available. But uh, I, I got to admit, Agar Sanction is a great score, and, and I, no offense to the other people who composed uh, scores to his films, I think it's probably the best score an Eastwood film has, you know, save the Morricone ones, you know, the, the, it, it, it's in that category. But as you're going to explore in your next podcast with Jaws, th- that score just rises above and beyond as a score. I think, as you'll probably discuss, Spielberg himself said, it saves and makes the movie. So I guess, sorry, Clint, I'm going to have to disagree with you. That's okay. So we know that the Iger sanction did not do nearly as well as Jaws did in 1975. The Iger sanction did make a profit, though, earning about $14 million, about $5 million more than its budget. Eastwood moved on from his contract with Universal, securing a better relationship at Warner Brothers that still exists today. John Williams moved on from the Iger sanction to sit down at the piano a few weeks later and created one of the most recognizable movie themes in history for his next film. Brian, what continues to amaze me about John Williams is his chameleon-like ability to work on two very different projects and do well with both of them. If you showed the Iger sanction to someone who didn't know that John Williams wrote the music, then showed them their jaws, I think that person would be in disbelief that the same person wrote the music to both films mere months apart. Yeah, I agree. But then again, I guess there's a reason you, me, and the people listening to your podcast like the guy. He's a genius. And, uh, the baton is about to venture to those golden years that let the whole world know that. Yes, we will. And on that note, we're going to wrap up our discussion of the Iger Sanction here and get ready for the next episode. Brian, thank you so very much for joining me and guiding us through this score that is overshadowed by that shark movie, but really should get more appreciation from John Williams fans, and I hope we have done that here. It was a pleasure, Jeff. I, I hope you can do it again sometime on a future episode. But until then, I'm going to continue to enjoy your journey through William's work on the baton. 
And a big thanks to all of you for joining us for this episode. So if you have a guest by now, Jaws is the focus of the next episode. I'm going to be joined by another guest co-host who will help me understand how Williams created a seemingly simple music statement and suddenly became as famous or more famous than the actors who appeared on screen. As always, I read the comments you send to me about the show, so please keep them coming to jeffswim at aol.com or post a review on Apple Podcasts. Until we meet again, the baton is down. <laughs>